the First Amendment of the Constitution, I always say, is first for a reason. Uh, the founders of our country were so deathly fearful of over-centralized power that they saw the press as a bulwark against uh, authoritarianism, which they were rebelling against and wanted to rely on a free press to hold power accountable. Former executive editor of the New York Times, Jill Abramson, was at the American Academy in Berlin in late May to deliver the annual Fritz Stern Lecture. The topic of her apt talk was preserving and protecting quality news and information. Abramson teaches nonfiction narrative writing in the English department of her alma mater, Harvard University, but she spent the previous 17 years at the New York Times, where she was the first woman to serve as Washington bureau chief, managing editor, and the newspaper's executive editor. For this episode of Beyond the Lecture, we began by asking her how has the spread of fake news been accelerated by social media Fake news, you know, are stories that are purposefully false, but are designed to go viral. And they're designed also to make money. And so you have phenomena like teenagers in Macedonia sitting and manufacturing these ridiculous stories and making $15,000 a clip per, per story. But in the age of news consumers assuming constant media bias on the left and right, we've lost sight of the Golden Age's maxim of honest journalistic objectivity. Sure, there, there was a Golden Age when basically there were three in the U.S., there were three uh, broadcast networks and a f- very few national newspapers, really only the, the New York Times, which was beginning to go national, and the Wall Street Journal. Uh, everybody else got their quality regional newspaper, or local newspaper, and you had for all of those uh, outlets, editors uh, who were deciding what the hierarchy of reported and accurate information would be. And, you know, you had at night most Americans gathering in their living room around what was actually called the cool fire. That was the television. And so everyone gathered around the cool fire to get the same news so that the population was operating off of more or less the same fact set. And there really is no more common set of facts. And in the age of social Social media, which we're in now, uh, no one anymore wants an anonymous editor picking the hierarchy of news. They'd rather get their information sent to them by people they know. But reliable journalism is something altogether different. It takes much more time and money and trained editorial judgment to produce reliable, corroborated information. And this kind of information, in turn, is important to make informed political decisions investigative reporting where, you know, journalists will dig for months, even years at a time to get at the truth of something. You have that going on right now with investigative reporters trying to get to the bottom of Russian interference in the election 
we've seen with um, the election of Trump a revival of that kind of reporting and a, a wider sense that quality newspapers like the Washington Post and the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal are actually important and regaining a bit of value. But what are the causes of media fragmentation? For Abramson, it goes back to the entrenched politics of playing to the base in American elections. The fragmentation in the media that we were talking about earlier parallels the political uh, developments of recent elections where you have the extremes of the electorate, the base of both parties, playing a much more important role, uh, and the middle being eaten away. And, you know, media in some ways, the, the fragmentation and filter bubble reflects that as well. So I don't think you can really have a reform in the media world without also some solutions to how uh, the U.S. political system works. But, as Abramson sees it, there's a common denominator of undue influence. What you have, I think, in both the political sphere and the media sphere is a kind of what I call financialization, where, you know, money and making money is by far um, the most important dynamic. Uh, fueling what goes on because the thing that mo you know even more than having the support of your base that keeps incumbent lawmakers in office is big money the the filter bubble operates according to financial reward as well so what can public interest groups do to help galvanize investigative reporting and what of the necessity of wire services and foreign desks I'm actually on the board of ProPublica. My background is as an investigative reporter, and what ProPublica is is a public interest uh, charitable organization uh, that uh, supports a newsroom of about 40 journalists who are all investigative reporters working on projects that they then either partner with large news organizations to publish or they give them away to regional and local news organizations that no longer have the money necessary to do investigative journalism. Except for places like the BBC or the New York Times that still maintain correspondence all across the globe. Reuters, the AP, uh, Agence France, uh, those wire services are critically important because they're on the ground still and almost everybody else is cut back. Returning to the United States, what do a lifelong investigative reporter and newspaper editor and her colleagues think about the Trump administration's repeated demeaning of the press? I hate to generalize about the press because it is so fragmented you can't, 
but um, the best news organizations, the highest quality ones, I think feel a little bit guilty about coverage during the campaign. Everyone wrongly assumed that Donald Trump was not going to be elected. And the kind of searching investigation that should have been done earlier in some cases was not. What Donald Trump and his White House are trying to do is delegitimize the role of the press. And President Trump does not want to be held accountable by the press. And so he, as a businessman, knows very well that the press is financially weakened in the U.S. and thus vulnerable since the campaign and, and since the election. The Times has added 308,000 paying digital subscribers. So rather than failing, Donald Trump is actually creating a bit of a bonanza for the New York Times, which he sees as his nemesis. In closing... We asked Jill Abramson about the great German-American historian in whose name she was lecturing that evening at the American Academy. You know, I had had the the pleasure of of knowing Fritz Stern, but not really through any terribly serious connections, uh, neither his role as a historian nor through my role as uh, executive editor of the New York Times. I actually met him when I was a very small child because he was frequently a luncheon guest on Sunday at the home of some very close older friends of my family. Then, you know, roll the camera forward to when I was editor of the Times. One of my uh, closest colleagues was Sam Sifton, another editor who was Fritz Stearns' stepson. Uh, Sam nicely arranged for us to be reunited and for the two of us to have lunch in one of the private dining rooms uh, at the time. So we had a wonderful conversation that I do vividly remember about President Obama and what his victory meant to politics. And we were talking about both of our hope for uh, triumph of liberal democracy. And of course, no one better than Fritz Stern knew how quickly things can change in any country. And so I feel it's a real pity that he wasn't around for all of us to talk to him about the meaning of the 2016 election. That was Jill Abramson, former executive editor of the New York Times, speaking with the American Academy in Berlin's Beyond the Lecture series. Abramson was at the Academy to deliver the 2017 Fritz Stern Lecture, Preserving and Protecting Quality News and Information. You can hear more of our Beyond the Lecture series interviews with distinguished American political scientists, economists, and journalists on our website, americanacademy.de, and on SoundCloud. You can also find the American Academy on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Vimeo. This is RJ McGill from the American Academy in Berlin. Thanks for listening.